Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We've been talking about the kingdom of God. Jesus has been presenting before us some parables about the kingdom of God, what it's like, what it will be like, what it is today, what it should be like for us today. We are to seek him like a treasure in a field. We must anticipate a day when we will give account to the Lord and he will separate the sheep from the goats. We understand that the kingdom of God is a progressive thing, like leaven in a lump or a seed in the ground, that whether it's in time or whether it's in us as individuals, it is something that grows, but will one day for certain bear much fruit. We've spent much time talking about these things. And we're going to start in verse 53 here. When Jesus finishes the parables, and I think that we have an important subject to talk about today that perhaps is on our minds from time to time, Um, and we're going to try to deal with this subject about faith and unbelief, um, the working of God um, in relation to faith or the lack of faith. Sometimes we have questions. God, I prayed for such and such. God, you know this is going on. Why aren't you doing something? God, you said that if you just have faith, a grain of a mustard seed, we can move mountains. Lord, don't I at least have a mustard seed? Why aren't mountains moving? I've had those, I've had those questions. I still have some of those questions sometimes. You know, Especially when you're in the middle of some sort of turmoil or trial, those questions tend to come out even more. Because that's when you're really fervently seeking for God to do something. And sometimes he doesn't really do what you anticipate him doing or praying that he does. We're going to talk about that subject today. Let's read the passage here and then dive into it. Matthew 13, verse 53. The Bible says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would give us guidance today. I pray that we would have faith. I pray that we would trust you and that we would not question you, that we would not exalt our wisdom and our knowledge above that of Christ. Give us this day our our daily bread. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we see Jesus has been teaching his disciples. He's been teaching crowds. He's been talking to them in parables. And says he went away from there and coming to his hometown. Now we know that he had set up his shop essentially in Capernaum. But based off of 
the reaction of these people, it almost seems like he's returned to Nazareth, uh, where he had grown up, uh, with his family, with Joseph, with Mary. Perhaps it was Capernaum, perhaps it was Nazareth. He doesn't, he's not very specific, but I would, I would think that he's returning to Nazareth, where he spent most of his childhood. Um, and he taught them in the synagogue, which... Makes me wonder, maybe it's Capernaum because Nazareth was such a small town. It's kind of hard to think that they had their own synagogue. But nevertheless, we see a situation here where people are there being taught by Jesus. Jesus is stating some profound truths. He's teaching them in such a way that is distinguishable from their regular teachers. The rabbis, the Pharisees, the scribes, whoever it is that might be teaching them on a regular basis. They teach one way, but Jesus is teaching in a much different way, in a way that is recognizably more profound, filled with greater wisdom. Uh, perhaps it is that, I mean, we've seen him preaching before. He's drawing things out that are, that are painful to hear sometimes, profound to hear, different than what they're used to, presented in a different way. Um, he taught much about the kingdom of God. He is bridging the gap between a life in the Old Testament law of Moses and the New Testament where he has come to be their righteousness, to point people to the Father through grace, by faith. And this is stuff that they're not used to hearing. People are typically just used to hearing, okay, turning your Bibles to the law. What law are we supposed to keep today? Or let's look to these prophecies of something that's going to come which is actually quite glorious. I love the prophecies. I think that the major and the minor prophets are some of the most overlooked books in the Bible, and we do well to, to look into them, for they speak of Christ, as does the law. But the people are not, being used to, are not used to being taught the way Jesus has been teaching. And that so much so that they start talking amongst each other, saying, you know, they're astonished. This is verse 54. And they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? You know, back then, there's no teacher who was an island. Um, in that sense, every rabbi came from another rabbi. And there's always a, there's a, a noticeable string of, of thought that goes from student, teacher to student. And people can usually know who, okay, so here's a teacher. He was trained by so-and-so, so he has these um, proficiencies. He usually comes with this focus. You know, as was, it was common in this day for students of philosophers or rabbis to um, teach a certain way, to have a certain angle on things. But yet Jesus' teaching is so distinguishable from everybody else that they've been learning from, that they know that they can't real, they're confused. Where is this guy getting these teachings? This is not like anybody else's teachings. We can't see Jesus. Oh, Jesus was obviously the disciple of Rabbi, you know, so-and-so because he's teaching this way and that's how Rabbi so-and-so taught. There was none of that. They had no idea where Jesus was getting these things. And they hadn't quite come to the realization that he has come to them straight from the Father and that he has been filled with the Spirit, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him and he's going out and boldly proclaiming the truth straight from the Father, glorifying the Father. Um, they're not quite ready to accept that. Why? You know, they say in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? 
Is not his mother called Mary, and are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? This, you know, there's a couple of things we can see from you know, we could assume from here. One, they remember some of these people perhaps are some older people. They remember him as a child. They remember him growing up, going to school, going you know, going through his uh, his training as a Jew. You know, following his parents along, interacting with his father's business. Um, they may, perhaps they saw him. They remember him playing in the streets with the other town's children, with his brothers and sisters. To them, they don't understand how this man could be this divine son of God, um, plopped down to be the savior of the nation of Israel. They saw his upbringing that it wasn't very special. Yeah, sure, they they probably recognized maybe this kid had some extra. Um, understanding of the law. He was extra devout growing up. But in the scriptures, we don't see Jesus performing miracles and teaching profoundly until the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in his baptism. And then his ministry really started from there. That's when he started performing the miracles and the healings and teachings and things like that. When the Spirit came upon him in his 30s. But as a child, he was probably grew up just a normal child. I mean, that's that's kind of the idea behind him being a Nazarene. He would be nameless. He would just, there is nothing, you know, even according to the prophecies, there is nothing that we should find beautiful about him as a prophetic about the Messiah. Um, but the people, they, they didn't recognize that what they were saying was actually fulfilling Isaiah uh, when he says there's no, there's no beauty that we should behold in the Messiah. They're not really recognizing that what they're saying is fulfilling that. You know, is this not a normal guy? I mean, why is he teaching like this? Where is he getting all these things? It doesn't make sense to us. He's just a normal guy. We remember his upbringing. There was nothing particularly profound about him for the, for the decades that we knew him. And that's what they're saying here. And really... I mean, have you ever argued with somebody or had a disagreement with somebody? And in this conversation, the person never really deals with the subject matter at hand. It's always something about you or something about some peripheral issue that, uh, that they are just trying to get sidetracked from the actual matter at hand, right? Their attention doesn't want to be on the facts at the, you know, I've deal with this. I've dealt with this a lot in the past, where you approach somebody with a with a with a scriptures that has a particular teaching that perhaps the person that I'm talking to doesn't really want to listen to. So what do they do? They don't talk about. They don't address the scriptures that they're being approached with. They just address the general ideas that surround the issue and the implications and all the worries they have that if this is true, then this could happen and that could happen. When it's just like, no, 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 no. Let's stop talking about the implications right now. What does the Bible say? Okay, let's come back to the subject matter at hand. Okay, I read this scripture passage. How can you interpret the scripture passage in a way that allows you to disregard it? <laughs> Um, the scripture has something to say to us, um, and you're trying to avoid it by talking about everything except for the passage that we're looking at. Have you ever been in a conversation like that with somebody? I have several times, many times, and all they want to talk about is, 
you know, how, how dare you say this to me? Or, well, I don't agree with it because just think about all the implications in society. That's not politically correct and all these types of things. But what about the scriptures? Okay. So in a sense, Jesus is in their synagogue. He's teaching them from the word, from the scriptures. And the people are talking about everything except what he's talking about. Like, who is this guy? What's he talking to us about? I mean, how, where did he get all of these things? I mean, they wanted some substantiation. What, what are your sources? You know, how far back does this teaching go? Because this is the first time we're hearing some of these things that you're saying. Um, how could it be true? Rather than addressing his actual teachings, they just address everything that allows them to kind of leave it up to them as far as if they want to believe it or not. Um, rather than the authority of Christ, rather than the authority of the scriptures that people are generally not willing to submit to. You know, and that's one of the reasons people sidetrack conversations because we don't want to submit to something that may be true. And if it's true, then we have to believe it. But we don't want to deal with it. We'd rather stay in some state of ignorance so that we don't actually have to submit ourselves to this hard thing. And here, he's in, let's just say he's in Nazareth right now. He's in Nazareth around all these people that he grew up knowing, and they knew him growing up. They know his family, they know his brothers and sisters, his mother, his father, his father's industry. Um, and they're just wondering what in the world is he talking about? How, how could he say these things? And they're not really, and we can gather here from verse 57. <clears throat> that they're not necessarily sincere in these questions because it says they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Which, this word for offense means they stumbled over him. It wasn't something... They didn't take him and his teachings and they weren't edified by it. They weren't built up by it. They were torn down by it. They stumbled over it. They fell over it. It was destructive to them because it revealed really what Jesus, his, his ministry, did for many of the Jews. In fact, maybe most of the Jews in his day is it brought out their carnality, their lack of desire to truly follow God and his word. We see that clearly in the Pharisees where... Yeah, they wanted to be teachers of the law. They wanted people to, yeah, sure, maybe they had a zeal for the law of Moses. I mean, they talked about that plenty. They had a zeal for the national heritage of the bloodline of Abraham. They had a zeal for those things. But when it came to, when it actually came to be time to follow the Messiah that they pro, that they preached about, according to the prophets, I mean, that was part of the regular teaching is the prophecies of the coming Messiah who would restore the glory to Israel. That was part of their teachings. But when the Messiah actually came, they stumbled over him, as was prophesied also in Isaiah, that some would find him to be uh, peace, some, some would find him to be a beauty and a satisfaction, but some would stumble over him. And here we find people stumbling over him because, I mean, as things are, you and I, I mean, in our community, we can talk morality with people all day long. People will talk, you know, in this town, you'll find all sorts of people who will talk about, you know, all the things that are wrong in the world and what we need to do to fix it. And they may be even they may even say people just need to come back to Jesus, come back to the Word of God. But when it actually comes time for them to come to Jesus and for them to come to the Word of God, they start sidetracking things. 
because they don't want personal confrontation. They just want all the, the abstract world to be better. They, you know, it's, and it's reasonable for people to want people to stop aborting their babies and um, all these different things that are going on in the world. But when it comes time to actually follow Jesus themselves, people don't want that. We want to live our own life, being a good moral person, right? But when Jesus leads us into something that is uncomfortable for us, we don't want to actually follow Jesus then. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he says they took offense at him. They stumbled over him. They didn't find him to be solid ground. They didn't find him to be somebody that they wanted to follow. And they were bringing up all these things to excuse their lack of allegiance to the Messiah. <clears throat> and then Jesus says, after they took offense at him, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And you know he's referencing the fact that they knew him. They knew his life. He was around. He was familiar to them. Um, and, and isn't it not true? Like sometimes, like you think about your own endeavors to minister to your own family. Sometimes family is the hardest to witness to, to bear witness of Christ to. Sometimes we can have respect and um, people will listen to us about the gospel about Jesus Christ. You go door knocking and they'll listen to you more intently than your own family members are. Because your family knows you. Your family knows that, you know, regardless of who we appear to the outsiders, our family knows more than anybody else that we're just normal people. You know, they grew up with us. They know that we've made mistakes. Now, don't read this into what I think about Jesus. Jesus wasn't a sinner. But talking about you and me, we can understand this because... We've grown up with family. They know our mistakes. They know our failures. They know that we're just a normal person, just like them. Even though everybody else that knows you that's not part of your family may think of, think highly of you. They might respect you. They might listen to you and think that you have a lot of good things to say. Or you, you know, they appreciate all the good works that you've done for them, the hospitality and the generosity. But when it comes to your own family, they know that you're just a normal person. Um, and... I mean, that, this was what Jesus was running into. A prophet is not without honor. Okay, so, you know, except in his hometown and in his own household. The people knew him. I mean, this is proof to the fact that Jesus did not live a miraculous life up until his ministry started in his 30s. Because if he had lived a miraculous life up until that point, then they wouldn't be saying these things. They wouldn't be taking offense at this. They would be like, you know what? I knew he was going to be something special. I knew it. And here he is being something special. What a good boy, <laughs> you know. But the fact that they're bringing up this issue as opposition to following his teachings reveals that Jesus' life up until his 30s was actually probably pretty normal for a kid. You know, other than the fact that he wasn't disrespectful to his family, parents, he, he followed in the, in the footsteps of um, the teachers of the law, um, but, I mean, this is all laying the groundwork when we get to 58, which I really want to spend the majority of our time talking about here. And he says, <clears throat> And he did not do mighty, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, these people 
I mean, there's a lot of people that didn't believe. But these people in particular held a particular unbelief that Jesus just couldn't work there. There was nothing, there was nothing that he could do there because of their unbelief. So we can see here, now this is kind of an uncomfortable subject because we don't want to talk about, we have to be careful when we talk about things that Jesus can't do. Because uh, he is the infinite eternal one. So we do need to understand that there is an element of this where we must take concern and care that humans don't take authority over Christ. But we do read in the scriptures that he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't pose to you that our unbelief restricts Christ in as much as what the word says he does not do many mighty works where there is unbelief. Where there are people who are just going to reject him no matter what he does. And we see that with the Pharisees too. They proved that point. The Pharisees were constantly saying, show us a sign. Show us a sign. Tell us plainly that you're the Messiah. Show us a sign. Even though... How many signs did Jesus show them all along the way? How many miracles did he perform? How many prophecies did he fulfill? But it was never enough for the scoffers. It was never enough for these people. And here he's not even doing any of these mighty works because their unbelief is so profound. In this passage, their unbelief has resulted in a, a rejection of the ministry of Christ. They don't want anything to do with it. Sure, that perhaps they have enjoyed the stories of what he's doing around. Perhaps they enjoyed his preaching and his teaching. But Jesus can't have a ministry among them because they have already revealed that they, all have, they have no desire to see him as their Messiah. They have rejected the possibility that he could be their Messiah and their Savior. But what about, you know, Matthew 17, okay, 17 to 20. And I, I just, I want you to think in your own life, because sometimes we do have these questions. God, I feel like I'm asking you for things, and you just never reveal yourself to me. Is it because I have no faith? I'm asking amiss, perhaps? I mean, look at 17, Matthew 17, 17 to 20. He says, well... This is, this is a scene where there's a, a person who is having, having epileptic seizures. He's demon-possessed. He's constantly throwing himself into fire or water where he would drown himself. And his mother is trying to, has come to the disciples to try to get them to cast this demon out, but they couldn't do it. And so, Jesus, so this woman now is bringing her son to Jesus himself, saying, I need somebody to heal my son. Your disciples could not do it. And Jesus answered in verse 17 and said, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. I mean, Jesus isn't always harsh with his own disciples, but here he is very harsh with his disciples. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. And think about the situation here. Casting out demons. How many of you have ever tried to cast out a demon before? <laughs> I've never tried. I've never tried to do that. Here his disciples are actually trying to cast out this, this boy's demon. I've never been so bold. 
I can't even tell you if I've ever met a truly demon-possessed person, to be honest. But we can read Jesus' response to this very intense situation and think, Jesus, aren't you being a little too hard? I mean, the people are trying to perform a miracle from God here. Don't you think you could cut them a little slack? <laughs> but he's, he is calling them a faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Uh, he just, it sounds like he's losing his head almost. <laughs> it sounds like it, right? How long am I going to bear with you? What does that sound like to you? <laughs> I mean, I think about myself saying that to my kids if I'm angry with them. Sounds like something that I would need to repent of because <laughs> I'm being impatient. Now, Jesus isn't sinning here. But he is revealing his frustration with the disciples. They've been walking around with Jesus. They know his power more than anybody. He, they have received intimate, personal teaching with Jesus. They have seen his entire ministry from the very beginning. Of anybody, they should be the ones who recognize that this can be done. God can do this. They should be able to have the faith to do this. So Jesus says, bring him here to me. In verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and they, the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? Fair question. Especially after Jesus' harsh rebuke. He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. He says here, even a grain, a tiny little grain of faith can perform mighty works. So why don't we see mighty works among us? Is it because we really don't have any faith? Perhaps so. Perhaps it is. I mean, this isn't just a New Testament thing. I mean, we've heard testimony. You know, think about George Mueller's of the world. They pray, and the Lord does it. I mean, you read his autobiography, and you can just see his faith in God bleeding from page to, fa from page, to page. He speaks nothing. He speaks of nothing but his faith in Christ throughout his autobiography and the things that Christ has, God has done in his life. And has always shown himself faithful. In prayer after prayer after prayer being answered, he built an empire of orphanages from nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because of prayer. Because of his faith in God. Now, I'm not going to stand here and say that we should all be building orphanages and empires of ministry, because that's not necessarily God's will for everybody. But I do believe that God wants to show himself far more powerful through us than what we see. Because what we see is often, well, not much. Not much. I do believe, and I might be overly optimistic, but I don't think so according to the scriptures, because the scriptures show us a lot in the scriptures about what fruitfulness looks like for faith. That faith does produce fruit. The effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. Where is the much that's being availed? Now, I don't want to be unfair, and I recognize that 
the deep things of God are often things that are intangible. I recognize that, and I think there might be much of that going on around here. I do believe that Waverly is a very peculiar town in the sense that I've never been somewhere, in a, never heard of a small town where there are so many different people looking for Bible studies and um, things like that. I mean, there are a lot of Bible studies around town here, not, and not always initiated by ministers. There are a lot of local people who just want to know God better and want to fellowship with the people of God. That's a great thing, and I think that that's um, positive fruitfulness of the work of God amongst us. But what restricts the work of God? When the, when the disciples couldn't exercise this demon... I mean, they were confused. Why could we not cast it out? They thought they had enough faith to do this. They thought they had what it took. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking the question. I mean, to exercise a demon, that's not even something that the religious rulers of the day did. Sometimes they tried, but it wasn't common in their day for even the most religious of the people to be doing this. But the disciples, common, ordinary men, they were confused. Why couldn't we cast it out? We thought... That because we were your disciples that we could do these things. We thought, I mean, we've already been sent out. We saw, we've cast out demons before when you sent us out two by two into the surrounding um, areas. Why can't we cast this one out? He said, because of your little faith. Truly, I say to you, if you have faith like the grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. But in these cases, faithlessness restricted, not necessarily Christ's ability, because we see that Christ came and he himself cast out this demon. It's not that Christ was withheld. It's that the disciples were. The people could not perform the mighty works because of their unbelief. Christ was not restricted, and he proved that in this situation. So we, could, we should never think that because Christ can't do something because of our unbelief. It says that sometimes when the unbelief is so strong there, he will not do it. In this case, he did to show them. He was teaching his disciples something. He wanted them to learn the parable of the mustard seed in this situation. That if your faith is even this big, the size of a mustard seed. I used to have a pen that I got from a Christian bookstore as a teenager with a mustard seed in the top and a little, little window. It's a tiny little thing. You can barely even see the hole in my, in my finger here. That's about how big a mustard seed is. That's a small amount, but even a small amount of true, sincere, genuine faith can make nothing impossible for us. Look at John 11:40. Jesus said to her, I mean, this is Martha. This is her, her brother had just died. This is Lazarus, the middle of the story where Lazarus had just died. And everybody's wondering, Jesus, why didn't you come and heal him? We know that you could heal him. So they had some faith there, right? They knew that Jesus could do a miracle there. And Martha is, is weeping. And Jesus says in verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That if you believed, 
you would see the glory of God. Now this resonates with me with the passage that says, um, Lord, we believe, but I believe, but help thou mine unbelief. You know, in this situation, there was some belief there. They knew if Jesus came and healed him that he would have been healed. There's some belief there in the miraculous. Some of us even have a hard time with that. Jesus, does, God doesn't perform miracles today. He's, I mean, that's, so we sometimes our belief systems even go to the fact that he can't perform miracles today. And that's a shame because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can do whatever he wants no matter what point of time it is. Does he? Does he not? And I wonder if he does not because of our unbelief. But John eleven forty, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And does he not tell us today that if we believe in him, nothing will be impossible for us? We have questions about how we can have a grain of, must, of faith that brings the work of God. We wonder how we can be people like, like George Mueller. Look at Acts chapter 4. I always chuckle at this passage. In a way. Just because of... <laughs> this is the Simon the Magician or Simon the Sorcerer. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 4. He says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now this is after Saul, you know, after Stephen had been, had been uh, stoned and Saul goes out on his rampage against the church. And the church scatters. In verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who, who had them, and many who were paralyzed or, or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. I mean, there's revival going on in, in what city? In Samaria, a place that was typically thought for their, their altered view of Scripture, their lack of faith, their cultish tendencies, their impure worship. And here Philip goes down to Samaria, and he does, what, he does the job that the apostles were told to do, proclaims Christ. And as he is being obedient to what is supposed to be happening here after the ascension of Christ, we see that he is preaching, we see that he's performing signs. He, unclean spirits are coming out of people. Um, the, paralyzed, the paralyzed and the lame are healed. And this is producing much joy in Christ. And now there's a man in verse 9 named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. How many of you have ever watched those magicians on TV and it's just like, what in the world? How could you do something like that? And you just sit and watch and you watch it over and over again and you try to figure out how in the world he's doing this. And you and some of the conclusions people have are it must be demons. <laughs> you know, and perhaps it is. Who knows? I don't know. But the, he is amazing, this city, because of some of the things that he's doing. And they all paid attention to him. Talk, I mean, remember, Philip came... And the people are starting to pay attention to Philip because of what he's doing and what he's preaching. And in verse 10, they, they all had all previously paid attention to Simon the magician from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And he was feasting on this praise and the accolades that he's receiving from God. 
I mean, this man is the power of God that is called great. I mean, that's blasphemy. But And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. I mean, he was the magician that amazed everybody else. And now he himself is being amazed by what's going on here. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem, verse 14, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this guy is getting a little jealous about what other, everybody else is doing. And he sees, hey, when, these, when, when James and John put their hands on somebody and they pray for them, then they start performing miracles. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And he, I mean, he's been used to receiving the accolades and all the attention for these amazing things. He's used to that. And he wants to be part of this. He doesn't necessarily, he's, he's not really in this. I don't see that he's trying to overshadow everybody. But he wants to be part of it. You know, that's what he's been doing for who knows how long. And he doesn't want to be get the shaft and not be able to be part of this. Uh, so he, you know, in a way, he's envious of what these men are doing. In verse 20, but Peter said to him, "May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible," The intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. And now the, the disciples, they approach this situation with Simon and they see into the heart of Simon the magician, who had you know, notably repented and had been baptized and was following Philip, listening to his teachings, learning about Christ, perhaps that repentance was he really wanted to follow this new Jesus that he's been learning about. But yet the disciples, James and John, when they came to him, and he offers this money to get this gift to become part of this process, the disciples perceive the envy in his heart, the gall of bitterness, or what is it? The gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity that it's in his heart. You know, sometimes we might look at this kind of guy and think, hey, he just wants to be part of the ministry. He just wants to go and help people. But the disciples perceived his heart, that he didn't want it simply because he is a follower of Christ and he wanted to help people. But there was a gall of bitterness. He was bound by iniquity in his heart. And it, the disciples asked, told him, pray that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. This was a big problem. And what did it stem from? This man saw what everybody else was doing and he became jealous because he wanted to be part of it. He wanted to be part of what was going on. And sometimes we can you know, read testimonies of missionaries and other evangelists and we can hear about ministries that are going on somewhere else that are being vibrant and we want to, we want to be part of it. 
We want, God, why don't, come over here and do something like that over here. And perhaps we can be a little bit like Simon the sorcerer. Or perhaps we hear a story where, you know, so-and-so laid hands on so-and-so and their cancer was healed. I want some of that to come over here. Why can't I do that? Why can't I perform these types of things? Why can't we see that amongst us? God, come on, come over here and do this. We have a little faith. We have a little, I mean, surely we have a mustard seed. Come on. But perhaps there are some ill intentions because we want the signs. We want the signs and the miracles and the big things to happen amongst us. And we become envious of the fact that it's happening with somebody else, but it's not happening with us. We start to question, why in the world aren't you showing up in my life? Why can't I have any of this? In John 21, this also makes me chuckle, starting in verse 15. This is after Jesus had been resurrected and he's eating some, some breakfast with Simon Peter. In fact, they had just finished breakfast. Um, that Peter had gone with a couple other disciples and they went fishing. They couldn't find anything. Then Jesus appears on the shore and says, throw the net on the other side. And they catch a lot of fish. And then John, John says, it's the Lord. And they go back to the shore and they have breakfast with Jesus. And here Jesus, they had fin in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you, are young, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after this saying, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? He's talking about John is talking about himself. But when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus had said to him, if, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. And I want to stop us here. <clears throat> Sometimes we have the spirit amongst us that says, what about them? Or where's mine? Or, you know, in this, in this situation, it's kind of the reverse where Peter is he's being told of the manner of death that he was going to die, and he just he wants to know, well, Jesus, what about him? Why don't you talk to me about him? What's what's his what's your will for him? And Jesus says, That's none of your concern, what I'm doing with him, or what I'm going to do with him. You follow me. And this we must see the mindset here because we want to we, we wonder, God, what's going on? Why is this happening to them and not to me? Or why is this hap or why is this negative thing happening to me and not to them? I mean, I thought that I was faithful. I thought that I had faith. I thought I had more faith than them. 
And we can have a gall of bitterness that springs up within us, of envy or of a sense that this isn't fair. Why did I lose my loved one? What did we do wrong? Why did we lose why did we foreclose? What did we do wrong? Why do the wicked prosper and the righteous perish? What are we doing wrong? And Jesus, you know, perhaps the message is, don't worry about them. You follow me. And perhaps that's the message that somebody here today needs to hear. Because we're wondering, God, there's so many things going on in the world that I want to be part of. I see Christ doing mighty works in South Korea or China or India or all these different nations, or even just a few towns over maybe. We hear of a revival going on. God, why won't you do something like that here? And it's not necessarily a bad thing to want a revival to happen here. I want that. I want to see the town want for Christ. I do. And I pray for that quite often. But you know, sometimes what we need, the message we need to hear is don't worry about what my plans are for somebody else or for the future. What you need to occupy yourself with right now is following me. Come and follow me. Be faithful to me. Be my disciple. Focus on that. And then when I choose to act, I will act. But have, put your faith in me, know that I have not left you nor forsaken you. My power is not restrained by this or that. Follow me. Be faithful to me. I will be faithful to you. And in Matthew chapter 18, we see another example here of a misplaced perspective. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never inherit, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Um... So here we see an example of the disciples wanting to be wanting Jesus to say, "You'll be the greatest. You'll be the greatest. You know, come sit at my right hand." But Jesus says, "Unless you become like a child, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven." It's not about being great, but if you don't have the humility of a child, you're not even going to enter it. It's not about seeking greatness. The kingdom of God is not about seeking greatness and great things. The kingdom of God is about just simply following Jesus. And in Luke 17, 5, starting in verse 5, he says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Okay, so this is the cry of our hearts. Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you have if you had faith like the grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted into the sea, and it would obey you. See, again, we're talking about just a tiny little faith. But he, but he, 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 can, he persists in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, 
Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare a supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? <clears throat> so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so Jesus is teaching these people. I mean, the, the question that disciples asked was, Lord, increase our faith. Perhaps it was because they wanted to do some more great signs and wonders that Jesus was doing. Um, what was Jesus' answer? Be a servant. Do you want to have great faith? Then serve. Serve your God. Don't worry about when he's going to call you to sit and to eat. You know, you know you're a servant. You have no rights beyond what the master gives you. But what you do have is a job. So if you want great faith, first you have to be satisfied being the servant of God. If you can't be satisfied being the servant of God, then you'll never know what it means to have great faith. If you can't be satisfied simply obeying God, then you will never be able to understand what it means to have great faith. This is the foundation. And this is the starting point. I know all of, I, I have prayed this, increase my faith, Lord, increase my faith. But none of that means anything if we are unwilling to simply be a servant to God. You have to start somewhere. And where we start, it's a, being a servant. And as we're serving, as we're obeying God, as we're doing what we are commanded, as we are going out proclaiming the gospel, performing our gifts, being hospitable and generous and proclaim, magnifying the Messiah through our word and through our deeds, um, bearing witness of him according to our great commission, being obedient even unto death, counting not even counting the earth not worth living for. And if God chooses to use that faith to do something great, then He will. But the way you place yourself in a position where the where God will work great wonders amongst you is you have to first be satisfied to obey and to serve God. That's the starting point. Simon the magician, he wanted to skip over that part. He had barely even come to know Jesus. And he already he was wanting to show these great signs and wonders. No. What he needed was to simply be okay being a servant. And just learning what, it, what is it that Jesus wants me to do. And then do, spending time doing that. And then perhaps one day maybe the Lord, maybe God would have worked great signs and wonders through him. Maybe not. But that's the Lord's business. What what, what do we have to do with the Lord's business? If the Lord wants to take our life today and never work anything else through us, that's his business. If the Lord wants to take, this, take a child and work miracles through that child, that's the Lord's business. Our, we have a business that we're given. Our business is not to know God's business and what he's going to do and how he's going to work in people, including ourselves. Our business is to take what we do already know and obey it and do it. 
without shrinking back. And that's, I mean, I don't have an, I'm not going to give you an answer for having, how to have great faith, because even Jesus didn't really give them an answer. But what he did tell them is, get your heart right. You're a servant. You're my, you're the servant of God. You will do whatever it is that he wants you to do, whether it's to be great or to stay in the shadows. Whatever it is, be content with that. But in the meantime, you have a mission. So go and do the mission that has been revealed to you. It has not been revealed to you if you will perform miracles or signs and wonders and cast out demons and heal people. That's not been revealed to you if that's something that God wants you to do. What has been revealed to you needs to be enough for now. And if that's not enough for you, then you do have a gall of bitterness. There is a bond of iniquity. If you want, if you want to skip over this, and jump to what you think is the good part, then you're missing the call of God. Because the call of God starts with simple service, obedience, submitting yourself to Christ. Otherwise, we get off on this terribly inaccurate view of what the Holy Spirit's for. He's there to just answer my prayers and do what I think is best. No, God has already showed us what he thinks is best. We need to follow that. And if the Lord wants to do some momentary things through you, then he will. But you need to be content serving. And even if he does end up performing some sign and wonder through you, your response is simply, I'm an unworthy servant. I'm only, I've only done what was my duty. I've simply obeyed. I've simply served. If the Lord does great business through me, that's his business. It's not because I'm great. It's simply because I have come to him like a child. Humbly accepting my simple task of obeying him and following Jesus, being his disciple. So my appeal to us today, to myself, to everybody sitting here is, it's okay to be a disciple. But when you see the word of God, obey it. When you see your life, use it to serve him. Use it to serve Christ. Use it to serve Christ through serving other people. And let it be enough to be in the shadows. If that's all God ever wants to do with you, let that be enough. But serve him faithfully. Seek after him. Yeah, pray for revivals. Pray for your neighbors to be saved. Pray for your families to be saved. And open your mouth so that they might be. But be okay being obscure so that Christ can be made manifest. And if one day it comes upon you, that he is going to manifest himself through you in a great and mighty way, let that, let that be his business. Your business is take what you do know and do that. Because if you're not even doing that, then the intentions you have behind wanting to be great are probably misplaced. And there's probably something off in your heart. If you want the greatness without the simplicity, then there's something off here. We need to repent like Simon the Magician for the, of the intent of our heart. And ask God to realign us in humility so that we can simply be a servant and let God take us where he wants to take us. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your appeal to us. I pray that we would learn from these passages today to have faith in Jesus, to not have desire, envious desire of becoming something great. I pray that all of our great desire is that Jesus might be made great in the eyes of our community and our families. I pray that would be enough for us.
I pray for the humility that you would forgive my ill intent. And I pray that any here that have recognized that they do have some ill intent, that they would repent of that and be satisfied in just knowing you and serving you and obeying you, being your disciple. Not being your right-hand man who's going to reign with you on high, but to simply be your servant and let you lead us wherever it is that you desire to lead us. Doing your business, whatever that business might be, simple or great. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.